This is Monday Morning QB, February 22nd, 2021. Today on the show, deep in the heart of Texas, anti-Asian violence in the wake of COVID, holding Donald J. Trump liable for his many misdeeds, eliminating immunity for bad cops, and reparations for the descendants of enslaved Africans. All that and our winter membership drive is underway. Our goal this morning is $500. Special thanks to Bill Weinstein, whose contribution last Monday pushed us to our goal. Won't you help us today with a contribution right now? Call 202-588-9739. All credit cards are welcome. Go to WPFWFM.org or cash app us at WPFW. A deadly winter storm swept through Texas last week, freezing up critical infrastructure at the same time energy demand skyrocketed to record levels. This imbalance led to rolling blackouts in major cities, and the state came mere seconds and minutes away from a catastrophic months-long blackout. Dozens have died from exposure to the cold, carbon monoxide poisoning, and even house fires. But it didn't have to be this way in Texas. Reporter Chris Banker Drowns has more. The United States has three energy grids, Eastern, Western, and Texan. This Texas grid, managed by state authorities, has been highly deregulated since 1999, forcing producers to compete to bring cheap energy to market. In this drive for cheap fuel, producers cut corners. Investment in weather protection was low, and energy reserves were left depleted. So, when glacial cold swept the state last week, the entire Texas energy grid came inches from total collapse. Adrian Shelley, director of Public Citizen's Texas office, explains that the independence of the Texas grid has brought some benefits, despite its deep flaws. Texas was one of the first and is the leading state for wind energy production. Texas has also invested, uh, I think it's $7 billion in transmission lines, specifically with the goal of bringing uh, West Texas wind and solar sources into our urban environments. And those kinds of investments have really been eased by the fact that we are only dealing with state jurisdiction. We should have enough capacity in Texas to fuel our own demand, right? We're the energy capital of the world. We're awash in fuel, both fossil fuels and renewable fuels, right? So there should be enough energy in Texas to power the Texas grid without the need for more interconnections to the other grids. Now, people have pointed out, of course, that the 10% of Texans who are not on the Texas energy grid didn't experience these rolling blackouts. So people in El Paso, in the Panhandle, they're on the bigger national grids and they didn't have this problem. So it probably would be the case that if we increased our interconnections to those other grids, we could distribute power more evenly across the nation and we could avoid a problem like this. Um, but that interconnection would bring us under federal jurisdiction. And it's not entirely clear that that is uh, wholly and only good for energy production in Texas. 
Sure. Do we know yet how disparate the impact of this is, not just geographically, but also along lines of race and class? It's a good question. It is far too early to understand the uh, disparate impacts. Um, Public Citizen works pretty deeply on environmental justice issues uh, in Texas and elsewhere. And the, the concept of environmental justice is essentially that there are certain communities that have uh, existing vulnerabilities that are overburdened by existing challenges, things like uh, underemployment, uh, lack of access to health care, uh, lack of access to uh, decision makers in government. And uh, the very definition of environmental justice tells us that people in those communities will suffer more deeply from additional threats to their health and safety. So it is harder to endure a loss of power and water uh, if your pantry is not well stocked. Um, you know, it is harder to repair a broken pipeline uh, if your family is underemployed. So we know that there will be impacts to environmental justice communities, to lower income and vulnerable communities that are felt more deeply than will be the impacts to other communities. Um, but at the moment, it seems like almost everyone in Texas is feeling some effect from these storms. Maybe unsurprisingly, politics has kind of already dominated this conversation, at least outside of Texas. And, and we see the right wing attempting to blame the energy failure on renewable energies and on proponents of renewable energy. Can you address these right wing claims about renewable energy and about you know, the Green New Deal and specifically talk about whether renewable energy, in fact, is less hardy than fossil fuel systems? Well, first of all, the failure of the grid in Texas, if you look at just total numbers, total capacity that came offline, uh, the biggest culprit was natural gas. Um, the thermal sources, coal, natural gas, and nuclear uh, lost somewhere between 26 to 30 gigawatts of energy. This is at a time when statewide demand was about 69 gigawatts, which in and of itself is absolutely record-breaking for the winter. Um, the amount of wind that went offline at its max was about four gigawatts of energy. So it's actually just a little bit more than 10% of the energy that was offline that was wind. The wind sources and in fact solar are generally able to come back online more quickly. As soon as the wind turbine thaws out, it's generating power again. Um, as soon as the snow is, is removed from the solar panel, it is generating power again, and in fact, more efficiently at those cold temperatures. So in the days after the worst of the effects on Monday, we actually saw overperformance by wind and solar. Uh, the fossil sources, natural gas, they take longer to spin back up. It is true that the events of Monday and Tuesday in Texas were politicized immediately and uh, were done so with, with incomplete and inaccurate information. Um, the attacks on wind energy started early on Monday before total figures were known. And I think it is clear that those attacks were made purely for political reasons. Just one example of this, there was a photo that was shared around of a helicopter that was de-icing a wind turbine. It was shared all around Texas with the understanding that it was happening in Texas right then. 
This turned out to be a photo from uh, Sweden from 2013. And, you know, that fact was, was known pretty quickly. But for the folks who were trying to score political points against wind energy, that didn't matter, right? And this went all the way up to Texas leadership. Senator John Cornyn uh, was making these kinds of statements early on Monday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott went on Sean Hannity on Tuesday night and said it was wind, solar, and the Green New Deal that were to blame. Well, you know, the Green New Deal is just a piece of legislation, right? It's not even a law right now. So it's not really even clear what that attack means. I think this is really unfortunate. People's lives are at risk right now. People need to be told how to stay safe and healthy and well. They need to be told about the dangers of carbon monoxide poisoning, about the dangers of driving, about how to access emergency services. Um, lives are at stake. And for our leadership in Texas to be using a, a tragedy like this for political purposes is unconscionable. And I think that some of our lawmakers have something to answer for here. I wonder if some politicians are already being asked to answer for this. I mean, Ted, Ted Cruz is getting lambasted on Twitter for allegedly flying to Cancun in the midst of this crisis. Is there a chance that this blows back on the GOP in some significant way, maybe even potentially impacting 2022 midterm elections? You know, I hope that the voters of Texas will hold their lawmakers accountable to this. Um, Ted Cruz did fly to Cancun. We know that. You know, Greg Abbott did go out on national television and spread misleading information. Um, you know, these things have happened and these lawmakers do need to be held to account. I hope that that affects elections, you know. Unfortunately, I think that so much of our dialogue and our conversation is split on political lines right now. There's so much of these conversations that happen in echo chambers um, that we may not get the accountability that we need from our lawmakers on this. I will say that Governor Abbott has already rolled back some of his attacks in conversations uh, that he has had in the last day or two. I think that cooler heads will ultimately prevail. There's a lot of uh, unraveling of this disaster that needs to happen in the coming days and weeks. There are real solutions that are needed and political gamesmanship is just not going to get us anywhere. I think memories are short in the news and political cycles these days, but this trend to, to politicize you know, everything that happens, even a, even a national tragedy, this is something that elected officials need to be held to account for. And I do hope that people remember this on the next election day. That's Adrian Shelley, director of Public Citizens Texas office. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Grounds. The Asian American and Pacific Islander community has been faced with two pandemics, one of a health and economic crisis and the other of anti-Asian hate crimes, which has continued to spread throughout the U.S., much like the virus. Amara Evering has the story on this epidemic of hate. In the past month, an 84-year-old man of Thai descent was killed in San Francisco while just taking his morning walk in a seemingly random attack from a stranger. A few weeks ago, a 61-year-old Filipino man was slashed across his face with a box cutter on a New York City train. In Queens, New York, 
a 52-year-old woman of Chinese descent, was thrown onto a sidewalk by a stranger, an attack that left her with 10 stitches across her head. All of these seemingly random acts are just a mere taste of a violent wave of hate crimes against Asian Americans across the country. And many of these recent victims have been elders. The recent attacks on our elders is very scary, causes anger, and to see it captured on video, seeing them violently attacked. In one case, a person died because of those injuries, is devastating. That was John C. Yang, president and executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, who spoke to me about this epidemic of hate that has been spreading across the nation. There has been an exponential rise in hate incidents over this past year from 2020 until today. And we have seen it spike in part because of language used by the prior president. When you have a president that uses words such as Chinese virus or Wuhan flu or words even worse than that, it has an effect. Words matter. Since the start of the pandemic, the Asian American and Pacific Islander community has reported almost 3,000 incidents of anti-Asian hate. In New York City alone, there has been a 867% increase in Asian American hate crime victims. Yang put in perspective how common these incidences actually are. A survey that was done suggests that 40% of Asian Americans either have seen discrimination directly or have heard someone blame China or Asia for COVID-19. People are looking for people or things to blame during this pandemic. The Asian American community becomes a natural target. At the start of the pandemic, where Trump outwardly blamed China for COVID-19 and consistently spread misinformation about the virus, Asian Americans became an easy scapegoat, a community to pin all the blame on. Not only did many believe that Asian Americans were covertly carrying and spreading the virus, they also held them accountable for this global deadly disease. It came to a point where the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had to release a statement that said, quote, being of Asian descent does not increase the chance of getting or spreading COVID-19. And even though you might think this is common sense, misinformation and hate continue to spread like the virus itself. It is this virus that is also unfortunately at times contagious, that is spread by misinformation, disinformation. And those words make our community seem like it is a foreign community, a carrier of disease, or somehow to be treated as an other. But this isn't the first time Asian Americans have been treated like foreign others or used as an easy scapegoat. In fact, Yang says this reflects a long history of something called the perpetual foreigner syndrome. The perpetual foreigner syndrome is this notion that no matter how long Asian Americans are here in this country, we are seen as foreigners. We get asked the questions, where are you from? No, where are you really from? And we get this backhanded compliment of, oh, your English is really good. And it goes to this notion that has been part of our history, unfortunately, here in the United States. And you look back to when Chinese worked on our railroads, the Transcontinental Railroad in the 1800s, and that resulted in the so-called Yellow Peril. You think about the incarceration of Japanese Americans, and I emphasize the word Americans, uh, during World War II on supposed dual loyalties. Or you think about uh, post 9-11, when Arab Americans, Middle Eastern Americans, South Asian Americans, Muslim Americans 
were targeted because of terrorist attacks from a foreign country. Those are all exactly the types of examples of where our community, even though they're here in the United States, were treated as an other, treated as a foreigner. Because of this, any threat that is coded as somehow Asian is pinned on Americans of Asian descent. As anti-Asian hate crimes become increasingly more common and violent, many people have become fearful of simply doing things like shopping and taking walks. There's no question that there's this fear in our community. It's affecting behaviors. We've had several instances where even my friends or family members of those friends have talked about how they don't want to go out alone or they're very cautious whenever they go out to go shopping. And this fear is understandable. I mean, many of these incidences happen publicly on busy sidewalks, trains, or in businesses. In personally coming through the testimonies of those who were victims of hate crimes myself, I found a disturbing trend. Most of the testimonies of these very public hate crimes ended with, quote, but no one stood up for me. An Asian American healthcare worker recalled a man on the train who spat and coughed on her while he yelled racial slurs, but no one stood up for her. A woman was doused in Lysol while in line at a pharmacy, but no one stood up for her. At school, Children in a classroom made fun of a young Asian American girl and told her she was infected. No one stood up for her, not even the teacher. Yang shared with me the importance of having allies in those moments. One incident involving a friend of mine who was a victim of this attack many years ago, he said, even if someone in that restaurant it gave me a look at that point to let me know that they felt my pain, it would have gone a long way. So even if it's as small as a look to let that victim know that they are not alone. One of Yang's goals in his organization is to provide the tools for everyday people to address these situations. One thing we provide is what's called bystander intervention training. And this gives tools for people when they see an act of hate to act. Now, let me be clear. I don't want people to be superheroes and intercede and escalate the situation by fighting with a perpetrator or fighting with someone that is hurling racial epithets. But to your point about people saying that no one stood up for me, that's what we would like to teach people is there are so many small things you can do to help that situation that doesn't put you in danger. It could be as simple as after the event, going up to that victim and saying, hey, are you okay? Let me get you some help. For Yang, this is a way that all of us can be a part of a treatment for this virus of racism, a virus that has many strands. On one hand, this is the strand that the Asian American community is facing, but all of us are facing different strands of that racism, and so we have to address that together. John C. Yang, President and Executive Director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice. For more information, please visit advancingjustice dash. AAJC.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amar Evering. It's been just over a week since the Senate voted to acquit former President Donald Trump of inciting the deadly insurrection of January the 6th. 
The decision left many feeling that Trump may never be held accountable for his actions on that day and those leading up to it. But on that question, the jury is still out. Sue Goodwin reports. To put it simply, the Senate impeachment court isn't the only court in town when it comes to holding Trump accountable for the January 6th riot. And that means, despite Trump's acquittal by the Senate, his legal problems are far from over. Just last week, the NAACP filed a lawsuit on behalf of Representative Benny Thompson against Trump, Rudy Giuliani, as well as the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. The suit claims that their role in the insurrection violated a Reconstruction-era statute designed to stop the Ku Klux Klan from interfering with federal officers in the post-Civil War South. So can a law that was created in response to the KKK's reign of terror during Reconstruction be used as a winning legal strategy today? Let me tell you, this, is, this one's got legs. This is a good one. That's Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation magazine, where he recently wrote about why Benny Thompson and the NAACP have a strong case. They're suing Trump civilly under the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, which basically prohibits people conspiring to stop a normal process of government. They're alleging that Trump conspired to stop the normal electoral college certification count, which he clearly did. So that's a good one. That doesn't mean the lawsuit doesn't have hurdles to overcome, even though the insurrection on January 6 was incited by what was essentially a campaign rally for Trump. Ellie Mistal says it's likely Trump will claim sovereign immunity in his defense. It basically means that elected officials, representatives of the government, have immunity from civil liability, qualified immunity for acts they take as a member of the government. Now, what the NAACP and Congressman Thompson are arguing is that Trump was not acting within his presidential powers when he incited a rally to attack the Capitol. He was acting in his personal capacity. Therefore, he does not have that sovereign immunity. But that's going to be the Supreme Court fight. Put like this, I think it's going to go to the level of Supreme Court fight. That's how good I think the rest of the lawsuit is. And it's not the only civil litigation that Trump is facing. For example, in New York, Attorney General Letitia James is leading a civil investigation into whether Trump and his company improperly inflated the value of his assets in order to secure loans and obtain tax benefits. Ellie Mistal is quick to acknowledge civil litigation will not result in jail time, but it could result in financial damages and in that, there could be some level of justice. Look, civil liability is, is money. In the wisdom of our capitalist founders, taking people's money away is thought to be, you know, a significant punishment. You know, I, I think of the trading places where uh, Eddie Murphy says to Dan Aykroyd, you know, one of the ways I found the best way to hurt rich people is to make them poor people. Um, that's civil liability in a nutshell. But what about criminal liability? Ellie Mistal admits putting Trump physically behind bars presents practical complications. Would he still be entitled to Secret Service protection? If so, where do they stay? In another cell? But concerns such as that aside, 
Ellie Mastal still believes the legal argument for pursuing criminal charges is valid. There is still a credible case that you can make for actual incitement of a riot. The House managers, I thought, laid out a very convincing criminal legal case. Now, let's remember, that wasn't the standard they had to reach. You can impeach a person or con- and convict him for high crimes and mis- misdemeanors without proving evidence beyond a reasonable doubt or having conduct that even rises to the level of criminality. And yet, the House managers, I did think, put on a case that rose to the level of criminality for Trump. So I definitely think you could make a case against him for incitement, whether or not Joe Biden's Justice Department and specifically Attorney General-designate Merrick Garland, assuming that he'll get a hearing this time, whether or not Garland wants to go down that road is a, is a different question. But I think factually it's there. And there's even more possibly in store for Trump. Last week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the House would move to establish an independent commission to investigate what led to a mob storming the U.S. Capitol one similar to the investigation of the 9-11 attacks. That likely will bring more scrutiny on Trump's actions, but it will also have a broader scope of inquiry into a range of actors, actions, and inactions that allowed the breach of the Capitol to happen. And that is essential if the commission is to achieve its goal, we need to figure out who's responsible. Remember, what's kind of been lost, I feel like, during the impeachment trial and the focus on Donald Trump is that you know, who else within the government potentially helped these people? We saw on the day of the insurrection that it certainly looked like at least some of the cops were extremely permissive of some of the rioters. We have the video of the cops seeming to move the gates. We've got the video of the cop uh, taking the selfies with the people, right? So there's that aspect of it, right? And what's been lost a little bit with the focus on Trump is that we don't know how many Republican elected officials were involved. There have been reports about certain Congress people giving tours to people who would later riot at the Capitol. We got to investigate that. We got to investigate if there was any further coordination, not just between Trump and these people, but between the RNC and these people or any official Republican representative in these people. So all of that needs to be investigated. And a 9-11 style commission, I think, is how you get to that investigation. If people remember the actual 9-11 commission, what that did was show various security flaws in our system that terrorists took advantage of. What security flaws did these white domestic terrorists take advantage of, I think, is a, still, is a question that still needs to be answered. Even as these efforts to hold Trump accountable proceed, there are those that say maybe it's just better to move on from Donald Trump and get back to the business of running a country that actually functions. And that, says Ellie Mistal, would be a big mistake. How many times do you want to make the same mistake, right? This is the mistake that we made during the Obama administration when Obama came in and he said we need to look forward, not backward, um, instead of prosecuting Dick Cheney and other assorted cronies for war crimes. When you do not hold people accountable, they get the impression that what they did was okay and they'll do it again. And by the they in this case is the Republican Party. They have gotten the impression after 
they literally tortured people and, and no accountability was ever brought to them that actually torture is okay and you know what we're going to turn around and the next time we're in power we're going to kidnap babies and steal them from their mothers and keep them in cages that was the impression they got after we failed to prosecute cheney for war crimes after this insurrection what impression will they get next so if it's okay for donald trump to literally try an armed revolution in order to keep himself in power what happens when we're dealing with President Tom Cotton or President Josh Hawley or, God forbid, President Ted Cruz. What will they do to stay in power? If it's okay for Trump to do it, then it's going to be okay for the next guy to do it, and the next guy is going to do it even worse. You have to hold people accountable for wrongdoing. Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for The Nation magazine. You can read his work at thenation.com. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Legislation proposed by Montgomery County, Maryland Delegate Janelle Wilkins to end qualified immunity, a Supreme Court doctrine that ensures that cops are not held liable for crimes unless an officer has already been convicted of that same crime, became the launch pad for a national campaign when Ben and Jerry's ice cream founders announced their support. Jerry Greenfield says police qualified immunity has got to go. So it's a get out of a get out of jail free card, and uh, it it undermines the trust between communities and police, and it is essentially an unfair and unjust policy. It it, it sounds um, like a catch twenty two, unless a police officer has been convicted of something prior to an offense being committed, no other police officer can ever be convicted of it. It's exactly true. Can I give you uh, an example? I mean, the situations need to be so similar. I mean, in one example, a judge threw out a case where police officers sicked an attack dog on a homeless man while he was surrendering by kneeling down with his arms above his head. And the judge compared it to a case where police officers had sick an attack dog on a person while lying face down and concluded that the two cases were not exact and therefore the police officers were not guilty. Wow. And it's, you know, it disproportionately affects black and brown people. And one of the big problems is that police officers uh, are able to use lethal force. And so it's even more important that there be accountability. You know, it's sort of interesting for Ben and me, we've been in business for over 40 years. And as business people, we understand that accountability is the key for getting good results. And it's not that this is an anti-police campaign. Uh, You know, we believe that there are many, many fine, committed, wonderful police officers who go above and beyond the call of duty. But, uh, there are some who don't. And we say, love the good ones, prosecute the bad ones. The Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association wrote uh, that 
law enforcement needs qualified immunity in order to carry out their jobs. If without qualified immunity, they may be hesitant to act when it's most needed. Uh, You know, it's not true. First of all, I think all major lawyers agree that police officers have strong uh, protections just from the Constitution. They're protected from making reasonable mistakes. They're protected from making good faith errors. They're only responsible when they intentionally break the law or if they're incompetent. So that's, that's not really the case. Police are already protected. And this extra qualified immunity actually only protects bad cops. Good cops don't need that protection. Because they don't do bad stuff. Is that fair to say? Well, it's because you can be a police person, make a reasonable mistake. Uh, If your intentions are good, you are not guilty of anything. There, just this week here in Washington, D.C., the chief of police has asked for an investigation of each and every of the thousands of police officers here for associations with any subversive or right-wing organizations. The Capitol Police Force, which was overwhelmed on January the 6th by rioters, is in, has suspended six officers and investigating 29 others. And it seems, and not to mention, going back to other cases, George Floyd, so many, many, many others going back. But in recent times, it almost seems as though Folks are piling on the cops. Uh, You know, I don't think that's true. I mean, first of all, there are white supremacists in this country, and there are white supremacists in law enforcement, in the military. And I think it's essential that people who are in law enforcement are upholding the Constitution, which they are sworn to do when they take their job. Fifty years ago, or fifty-five years ago, or so, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, when he penned the book *Black Power*, was asked, "What can white people do if you're pushing whites and pushing black power and pushing whites out of the SNCC movement, more or less?" He said, "Organize among white people." And you said just recently in a press conference. This is not just a black problem. This is a white problem for far too long. Too many white people have sat on their hands while black people are being beaten and killed by the cops. It sounds as though you got that memo. (laughs) Uh, You know, I, I think it's absolutely clear that white people are the people with the power in this country. And that if we want to make change, if we want to have a more just country, a more fair country, a more equitable country, that white people need to be taking the lead. Uh, I mean, (laughs) if, if black people were able to make it happen on their own, it would be done by now. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I want to be able to do what I can to see this country be living up to its ideals that we were all taught in school that it's based on.
You've organized a very impressive list of endorsers, uh, celebrities, uh, uh, folks in all walks of life. Uh, that's quite an impressive campaign. Where do you go from here? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it's not that we've organized so many people. It's that there is so much support across the ideological spectrum for ending qualified immunity. Uh, at the Supreme Court, there's both Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor. Among the advocacy groups we're working with is the ACLU, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Leadership Council, and also libertarian organizations like the Institute for Justice and the Cato Institute. Uh, we've brought together business leaders. There was an open letter from the Players Coalition signed by over 1,400 professional athletes and front office people. There are performing artists. So I think where we go from here is legislation. There's already been legislation passed in Colorado, but what we really need is legislation at the federal level. And so that's what we are gearing towards. How strong is your support among members of Congress and the Senate? You know, uh, in the last uh, congressional session, there was a bill that was introduced in the House by uh, Ayanna Presley and Justin Amash. There was a bill introduced in the Senate by Mike Braun. There have not been any bills introduced yet this year. And uh, I think we'll see. I mean, that that's what this campaign is about, the campaign to end qualified immunity.org is working both with congressional leaders, but also to raise public awareness about the issue and to activate the citizens of this country to stand up for fairness and justice. Jerry Greenfield. He and Ben Cohen founded Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream. Their national campaign is to end police qualified immunity. The concept of reparative justice for the descendants of enslaved Africans whose forced free labor made this country rich is closer than ever before. A House Judiciary Subcommittee held a hearing last week. Texas Representative Sheila Jackson Lee is the author of H.R. 40, as in 40 Acres and a Mule, which was promised to the freed slaves after the Civil War, but never delivered. The government sanctioned slavery, and that is what we need, a reckoning, a healing, reparative justice we need to bring our nation together. And this commission is really, it is no figment of your imagination. It is a commission that will be appointed by the majority leader of the United States Senate, uh, the Speaker of the House, the President of the United States, a commission that will be funded for fact-based hearings, the opportunity for all people to be heard, and then, yes, a reparative healing of proposals to deal with the questions of the starkness of the life of African Americans in this country. Attorney Nkichi Taifa is a longtime reparations activist who submitted encyclopedic written testimony 
in favor of the legislation. She is encouraged that after 33 years since Representative John Conyers first introduced H.R. 40, a new generation has embraced the push for reparations and that it offers true self-determination for black people in the United States. We wanted to make sure we highlighted that reparations is an international issue. We might have our own specific reparations for this country, but the reparations movement, movement for reparations going on all across um, the world. We have the special rapporteur who uh, testifies. Um, people saw some new faces and heard some new voices, and that is a good thing because this movement must be transmitted intergenerationally. It was passed to me from previous generations. It was passed to me from Queen Mother Audley Moore, who fought for reparations all of her life. It was passed to me from Mario Bedelli. It's actually Queen Mother Moore and Mario Bedelli, known as the mother and father of the modern-day reparations uh, movement. So they passed that down to me, and I'm passing it down to others. That's how it's got to be, because as we said back in the day, it's a protracted struggle. But I did submit a statement for the record because, um, you know, everybody doesn't have the history that I have because I lived through the history that I uh, uh, that, that I talk about. It's not something that I read about in a book. I helped to shape, you know, that history as well. So I thought it was important to, you know, submit a statement for the record. But we're in different times now. And, you know, uh, we're our thrust and our rhetoric and our public outcry, was, we were galvanizing, we were trying to get people to just listen to us. And such a, but it's, it's reached the mainstream now. And sometimes when things are in the mainstream, it calls for a different um, attack. This was a, when I was out there on the board, we talking about reparations. I, I mean, Brother T, I'm going to really tell you honestly, I was just doing public education. I was just using that as, as a platform just to talk about all the mess we've been through, blah, blah. It little in my wildest dreams that I think it was it, it would actually pass. I just got to be very honest. So again, I come out of the black nationalist tradition, five states in the deep south, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina. And, and actually, in my viewpoint, the way reparations comes is at the end, of, at the settlement at the end of war, as damages from one nation to another nation. I was there for the Mari's vision that the United States would sit down at the negotiating table with the government of the Republic of New Africa. And, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? That was it. But um, that's not what is in folks' minds today. I know it's not. Even though that is a model, and, um, and as, I, as far as I'm concerned, still a very legitimate uh, model. But we're in a different time and different space. And um, um, folk are really a- absolutely trying to get this across the finish line. So, you know, we're stepping aside and um, supporting it, you know, and bringing our guidance and counsel and all like that. And I just want to see what happens. You said that reparations might take the form of land. And you mentioned also the Republic of New Africa, whose, po- whose policy was a separate land. Uh, like the Nation of Islam, which wants a separate state. Yeah, and that goes into what I was always taught 
uh, what's an important aspect or should be important part, part of aspect of reparation is the right to self-determination. For those who want a separate state, for those who want a separate land base on, on this soil that we built in, uh, in, you know, um, you know, cut up and all like that, have that right. But have that right that, uh, with, with, with repertory justice, with reparations that help to, um, have the new entity have some semblance of, of success. Those who want to go back to Africa to be able to have repatriation on um, resources and able to do so. Those who want to really try to be real U.S. citizens and have that respected and strive to make a multiracial democracy real, that's their right too. Don't just put everybody in that boat. The self-determination means whatever people decide which course they want to go, they should have that, um, well, they should have that um, option. And for those who do want to go that a particular route in terms of multiracial democracy, real, um, despite all the white folks telling us they don't want us anyway, we saw that very clearly on January 6th, but be that as it may, uh, there should be policies and practices um, in effect that's more than just ordinary public policy that um, benefits everyone as a whole, but benefits those specific folks who um, who want to go that route. And, uh, you know, at this stage, it's probably, that's probably most of black people. But there's some people who still have, like the Nation of Kassar, still have that spark of wanting some type of independence, like the Republican New Africa, some type New African independence movement, some type of, you know, independence. So we, we have always said there are various options for people as a people, and they should have uh, reparations to be able to, um, um, you know, actualize, you know, whatever their self-determining options are. Attorney Nkichi Taifa, a founding member of the National African American Reparations Commission. Dr. William Darity is a Duke University professor who has amended his support for H.R. 40 while he still advocates in favor of reparations. I think it's, uh, it's a positive sign that there are so many individuals across the country who are expressing support for the importance of establishing just such a commission. Uh, but I think that there are some weaknesses in H.R. 40. And, um, and I find it a little bit disturbing that in neither one of the hearings that have taken place on H.R. 40, the June 19th, 2019 hearing, as well as the hearing that took place uh, day before yesterday, that there has not been any uh, substantial or significant discussion of, uh, of the content of the bill itself. You know, what is it that the bill itself actually proposes to do? Uh, and I've found myself to be dissatisfied with the, the bill as it's currently written because it fails to direct the commission to develop a proposal that would meet three essential characteristics. Uh, and the first of these is the bill uh, should direct the commission to design a proposal that ensures that the reparations plan is intended for black Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. But secondly, the proposal should establish that 
a primary objective of the plan is to eliminate racial wealth differences in the United States. Uh, and this would require a minimal expenditure of 10 to $12 trillion. And then third, the uh, commission's proposal must be designed in such a way that it sets as a priority the provision of the reparations payments in direct fashion to eligible recipients. And again, the eligible recipients should be black Americans who are the descendants of persons who were denied the 40-acre land grants as restitution in the aftermath of the Civil War. I mean, there are some people uh, who go far back, and I recall them in the reparations movement, Queen Mother Moore, Imario Badeli, and others who tied what would be reparations to the concept of land, the Republic of New Africa, the Nation of Islam, a separate territory where uh, black people who were descendants of slaves would be able to live together and reparations directed toward that society, that, that nation, that country, in the same way that reparations are given to the Nation of Israel. Uh, yes, but at the same time that reparations were given to the nation of Israel, reparations were given to individual victims of the Holocaust. And uh, the nation of Israel was actually responsible for negotiating to ensure that the individuals who were victimized by the Holocaust uh, actually received direct payments themselves. And in the U.S. context, um, uh, the Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during the course of World War II received direct payments from the federal government. So I don't think it should be any different with respect to black Americans. And for any uh, black American recipient of reparations payments, if they should choose to use the funds for the purposes of, uh, of buying land uh, and perhaps buying land collaboratively with other black Americans so that they could live in a unified community, I think that's something that they should have have the right to do at their own discretion. But I don't think that the reparations plan in and, in and of itself should designate something as specific as the formation of, uh, uh, of a land republic for blacks as opposed to black Americans who receive the funds making the decision that that's what they'd like to use the funds for. Duke University professor Dr. William Darity on the H.R. 40 plan for a commission to study reparations for descendants of Africans enslaved in the United States. And that's our show for today. There's still time to contribute to our fundraising effort. Call 202-588-9739, go online to WPFWFM.org, or cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banker-Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe, keep your social distance, mask up, and thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. <laughs>